This episode of the Lament Configuration is dedicated to George Romero. Rest in peace. Welcome to the worst nightmare of all, the Lament Configuration Horror Podcast. I'm Greg Knox, and I'm joined by an explorer in the further regions of experience, demon to some, angel to others, reoffend. Hi Greg, thanks for the intro. And uh, your suffering will be legendary, even in hell. Oh, looking forward to that very much. I'm sure I'll be going there when I die. So, uh, as you probably guessed, because our show is called The Lament Configuration, obviously we are huge fans of Hellraiser. And this year marks the 30th anniversary of Hellraiser being released into cinemas. So over the next two shows, what we're going to do is we're going to cover all nine Hellraiser films um, from beginning to end, which... Hey, I'm really, really looking forward to that. But first, because just to let you guys know that um, obviously because we're discussing the films in great detail, there are going to be quite a lot of spoilers, um, but also the other things that come with our show. So Ria, why don't you take it away with our usual warning? Okay, and uh, maybe I'll make it Hellraiser themed as that is the theme of our show. Oh, okay. So go ahead. Okay. Warning, the following broadcast may contain Hellraiser spoilers, extreme language, violence, and topics considered graphic or adult, not for those of a sensitive disposition. Yes, exactly. So, our show is called The Lament Configuration. I am a huge fan of Hellraiser. Um, Hellraiser is, to me, sort of, as someone who is originally from the North, um, it's a very personal film to us. I mean, I don't know about you, Rhea. I mean, how, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I feel like it's up there in my favourite franchises and the first one being one of my favourite horror films. Um, it certainly left a mark on me in terms of um, inspiring my love for horror and everyone remembers their first watch of the first Hellraiser film. It's something that I watched sort of in my early teens I think growing up and I definitely did not forget it. Okay, now interestingly I didn't actually see Hellraiser. The first Hellraiser film I saw was Hellraiser 3 which is a very very weird way to kind of experience Hellraiser for the first time um so yeah so we had Sky in my house and um when I was growing up I used to watch all these uh, horror movies which kind of explains why uh, I am the way I am now and yeah that was the first one that I ever saw so I didn't actually see Hellraiser the first one um until much later on so yeah very very weird kind of how these things turn out so sequels do actually serve a purpose after all um but yeah as I said, I absolutely love it. Um, it's had a very, very sort of large effect on me. And it's probably my favourite of all the big franchises. Even some of the later sequels, which we will go into, um, there's still like a certain charm to them, I think, anyway. Uh, I mean, do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree that um, there was such a huge cult following of Hellraiser and it made such an impact that they just wanted to continue that and honour the fans with sort of further sightings of Cenobites and everything that they love about the first one. Um, and we are going to discuss the first and second, which I think are awesome films, uh, but particularly the first one, which is by far the most iconic and my favourite of the whole franchise. Yeah, so it kind of goes without saying that it's my favourite as well. Um, so this is Hellraiser, obviously. <laughs> and it's directed by Clive Barker, and it's based on his own novella, which is The Hellbound Heart. 
which he kind of wrote at the same time he was producing the screenplay for this. Uh, now, Barker is obviously quite a famous horror novelist, and his most famous kind of work, The Books of Blood, had come out um, a few years previously, and he had been asked to write screenplays based on adaptations of his work. So um, there was a film called Underworld, um, but more infamously, there was a film called Rawhead Rex. Um, Rhea, have you heard of either of those films? I've heard of them both, but I haven't yet watched them. How do you rate them? Um, I haven't seen Underworld, but I have seen Rawhead Rex. And Rawhead Rex is kind of just a bit of a shit monster movie. Because um, to say, Barker wrote the screenplay. But what happens is, when you make a film, obviously you will write stuff on the page. But then what the director or the producers choose to then do with that is another story. And Barker really hated the end result of Rawhead Rex. It's just a very silly monster film. And the monster looks fucking shit not gonna lie this was his really early work then yeah 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 so it's um the first screenplays that he did although it's not actually the first films that he's directed so hellraiser is his first full-length film but he had made shorts um with his theater company called the dog company so one of those is called salon and another one is called the forbidden which star doug bradley interestingly Uh so clive barker and doug bradley are actually really really good friends they've been friends for years even pre-hellraiser and they've known each other for a very long time but yeah so as i said this is his first full-length film and i think he did a really really good job with it since by his own admittance in interviews he had no idea really what he was doing and it's really due to the sort of the the crew that he had around him that he did as well as he did it's fucking amazing um so this is a 1987 film uh god i love 80s horror so (laughs) especially as we're getting quite late in the 80s there and it was quite developed there was a lot of like really cool horror coming to the surface at that time um the synopsis is an unfaithful wife encounters the zombie of her dead lover demons are pursuing him after he escaped the sadomasochistic underworld so as you said um this is at heart a love story now having seen all nine films the one thing that i think kind of sets this apart is that the story is very very kind of lean and mean and it's a love story so when people talk about hellraiser obviously they closely associate with pinhead but really the cenobites are actually an incidental element in this film yeah it all revolves around julia and frank um which is her oh well Frank, which is her dead lover. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's a really, really fucked up sort of love triangle. So uh, as you said, we have Frank Cotton, who is sleeping with his brother's wife, which makes him the Ryan Giggs of his day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he gets the box, and he does what most people do in these films, and he opens the box. Although in this film, he actually opens the box for a reason, and then... In the novella, interestingly, like when he opens the box, he talks to the Cenobites and he experiences like all this very intense sort of pleasure and pain, which isn't really kind of covered that much in the film for like sort of obvious reasons. Now, one of the interesting things about this film is that it's got this weird kind of displacement. Now, one of the sort of controversies of the film is kind of is the film supposed to be set in England or is it supposed to be in America? Because if you look at the locations, um, particularly there's a scene where you've got Kirsty kind of walking along the Thames and it's obviously the Thames because you can see Battersea Power Station in the background. Yeah, I definitely thought it was supposed to be set in England. 
because there are a lot of British accents and the house looks very English, don't you think? Well, there are a lot of American accents. So you've got Claire Higgins, who's obviously very, very English, but everyone else seems to be American. So they've dubbed sort of Sean Chapman's voice. So he's American. <laughs> that weird guy um, who is Kirsty's love interest, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> he is given a really shit American accent and he is probably the worst character in the whole film purely because of the dubbing, I think. Yeah, I totally noticed the shit American accent and that did make me think, oh, hang on a minute, aren't we, aren't we in the UK here? And then I was like, well, they've obviously just got some American actors that they wanted to work on this and they've just gone with it instead of making everybody sort of be forced to have a British accent if they don't have one. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a little confusing, but the house does look very British, so it's very relatable to us. Yeah, yeah, the house is very British. So the house is kind of, um, it's in Cricklewood, I believe, um, from sort of interviews and documentaries that I've seen. Um, and yeah, the house is actually still there. So there are people actually living in that house kind of as we speak. So probably blissfully unaware as to sort of the fact it was used for like this very violent horror movie. Um, so as we mentioned earlier, the main crux of the story is this this weird love triangle so you've got larry who's played by andrew robinson who is most famous for being the scorpio killer in dirty harry and he's very good at playing psychopathic sort of characters as we see in this film i suppose you agree with that so he's julia's husband and she's she's the star of the film yeah so claire higgins i think gives the best actual acting performance in this film because it's quite interesting like there isn't really a central character in the film because you've got larry but he's sort of more of a side character even though Andrew Robinson is given sort of top billing it's really kind of Julia who I think is sort of the lead really yeah and then and then with Frank it's like a huge part of it obviously but like you say it's this weird love triangle yeah and Larry I mean bless him he doesn't really do anything wrong but you can kind of tell that him and Julia like obviously they haven't had a very good marriage sort of so far there's obviously all this tension um well, probably doesn't help that like she slept with his brother on their wedding dress as well, which I thought was a very kinky touch. I did enjoy that. On their wedding night or on their wedding dress? <laughs> well, on the wedding dress, but it, I think it's supposed to be just before the wedding itself. Oh, okay. <laughs> so from there, what happens is they've moved into this house, which is Larry and Frank's grandmother's house. And sort of moving forward in the story a bit, what happens is that Larry is moving in and he cuts himself and it's very graphic where he cuts his hand on a nail and the blood from his hand drips all over the floor in this sort of old room. Yeah, it's an awesome scene. That that nail when he rips his hand still makes me look away the way the suspense is built up. Yeah, yeah. It's done in a really, really cool way. As you say, there's a lot of tension built up. And yes, it's very, very grisly that like he gets his hand caught on this random nail. And that leads to sort of one of the centerpiece scenes of the whole film, which is the resurrection of Frank scene. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, now it's uh, say very, very, very cool effects, definitely. And the effects for this film, um, they had a huge team, but were led by Bob Keane, who is more well known for his work on the first three Star Wars films and Alien. So very top level kind of special effects guy. And yeah, the special effects in this film, for the most part, are really awesome, particularly in this scene where you've got sort of all the sort of the guts and all the blood and the bones kind of coming out of the floor. It's almost like a spider sort of creature that comes up the way that he emerges. Yeah, it just looks so eerie. Now, I saw this in kind of a little bit less 
good quality kind of version and i also saw it in hd and it actually works very well in hd you'd think that hd would actually kind of ruin the effects but it actually didn't at all it actually really added to it because you can actually see it looks really really realistic i think yeah there's a lot of like kind of slime blood flesh and bone it's very effective it's very disgusting looking and um, when he comes back he's really dramatic and he's like please god help me yeah exactly so as i say that looked very 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 awesome um and it's quite interesting because in documentaries i've seen this scene was not actually originally in the script that barker wrote tony randall who uh he was the director of hellbound hellraiser 2 um he was sort of brought in uncredited to do editing on this film uh he actually kind of asked for it to be added to the film because uh, the company uh, new world gave them more money to add it to the film so this actually wouldn't have been in the film originally so which is a shame because yeah i think what he felt was is that well frank comes back but it's like we need to give it some oomph so yeah yeah, they kind of insisted that that got added yeah that it definitely is a turning point in the film as well it really like brings the point home it's so dramatic and it's so disgusting looking and even though the the effects do look a little dated there it just still works so well Mm. Absolutely. And then um, we get the scene um, afterwards where we actually see what Frank looks like post kind of regeneration. And again, it's very, very, very disgusting, like in a good way, if there is such a thing, where you see, you know, Frank and he's literally just pretty much all bones and probably mucus. You know, there's no sort of actual flesh on his bones yet. And um, how they did that was it's not actually the actor who plays Frank when he's a human. There's actually a different actor, a very, very skinny guy who they got to play frank in his uh sort of monster form called oliver smith and yeah it's him basically in all the prosthetic makeup and um he is actually frank probably more than sean chapman is interestingly and wow i I thought he gave a, a really good performance in this actually oh yeah he's amazing i mean they do use that technique a lot throughout all of the films where they have cenobites played by a different actor to the human version of the cenobite um, or they have skinless versions of humans um, that have been tortured or, you know, in this, in a similar sense of Frank, where they're either on the way to being a Cenobite or they're coming back from it. They're in some kind of state of limbo played by other actors, or sometimes it's the same actor as the human. So now, interestingly, very early on, um, we have the character of Kirsty, who is played by Ashley Lawrence, introduced into the film. Now, Kirsty in the nov- novella was actually a friend of Larry. And, you know, she's just a friend. She's kind of in the friend zone, as they say. And that's really kind of all she was. But I think they made the right decision in kind of making her like Larry's daughter from the previous marriage instead. But her character wasn't very very well developed in the novella and kind of the point that i'm getting to is a lot of the elements that i don't really like in this film of which they're not that many but there are certain things that do bother me even though i I love the film and one of which a lot of them are scenes that involve her so for example in the film it's three separate occasions we have a random sort of vagrant who appears oh yeah he appears like often throughout the franchise doesn't he and i'm always like who is this guy (laughs) yes and he was not in the novella you'll be surprised to hear so i really don't see the purpose that he actually serves other than to be a bit disgusting so there's a scene where he eats crickets which is lovely oh yeah i fucking hate crickets anyway so yeah, I noted that down and I also thought it was just one scene in the film where it's like just put in for effect and there's no real. You're kind of led to be thinking, is he like a prophecy 
what's going to happen, how does he connect with this, and then it's never satisfied. So I agree with you that that was a little irritating. Um, effective, but yeah, you know, a little irritating. Although I can't really fault this film, like I don't like to say anything negative about the first Hellraiser because I love it. Yeah, no, I, I love it too. So I, I love it. It's my favourite by far of all the films. However, it's not a perfect film and that's okay because that's what we're here to discuss. And um, yeah, that was, as I say, one of the elements that I didn't really like about it. Um, Ashley Lawrence is okay. Um, I don't think she's amazing, but compared to sort of the acting sort of that the other main characters give, I think she's a little bit of a step below, which is kind of unfortunate because her character then obviously becomes very prominent in the next film. But, you know, so I think she does okay. I think she does pretty good. I think her character is just unfortunately just a little bit underwritten compared to how important that she is. Let's put it that way. So um, Hellraiser is kind of a body count film, would you say? Oh, yeah. I mean, we've assigned ourselves the epic task of watching all nine. And I have done my best to record the deaths in all nine films. As I say, we're just starting with the first two. Um, so yeah, I think they are body count films. Although it's not your traditional slasher, it kind of is in a way. And there's a lot of death to record. So it was, I was, I had my work cut out for me. Let's just say that. Although interestingly, uh, Doug Bradley in an interview, he actually said, if you take the Cenobites out of Hellraiser, it is basically a generic slasher film. So he agrees with you. It's like a supernatural, it's a supernatural slasher. So yeah, it, it took me a while to realise that because there's so much else going on. And it's not really that traditional setup, but it's just this is what makes this film, you know, so different and why it stood out at the time, because it's not the formulaic slasher, but it still is. It's still got that, those great qualities to it. Yes. So Frank basically needs people to die so that he can regenerate his body. Um so he asked Julia, bring me people and kill them for me, and that's exactly what she does. Yeah, she does. So have recorded all the deaths in this film. I'll summarise because I want us to, you know, sort of see, compare between the different films as well, which ones have high body counts and which ones maybe have more average across the films. So they're all, I think they're all quite high. This one's got eight in it, as far as I have recorded. Mm -hmm. So the first actual death is Frank himself, as in when he gets sent to hell. Um, so he's he's torn apart by chains when he opens the box, and that's our first death. Mm. Yeah, and as I said, it's very quick because, as you everyone will kind of know, near the end of the film, there's a very very similar death, and they didn't want to blow their load too early, as they say. Yeah, um, I've then got. I mean, I've researched online, and as far as I know, there's another website here that's recorded um, Mrs. Cotton who's an unknown female, and she gets killed next. But what I have here is that Julia goes to the airport or somewhere that looks like that, and she finds her first victim that he's asked her to find. And he's called Prudho. <laughs> yes. Um, so this is a guy, um, anyone who's seen the film, he's the guy with the weak bladder. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So he's basically... Um, the first guy, and you can tell like he's a little bit kind of unsure as to what he's doing. He kind of really, really wants to fuck Julia. I don't. It's really weird. Like so, in this film, all the male characters really, really seem to want to have sex with Julia. Not really sure why. Not really my type. But hey, you know, beauties in the eye <laughs> of the beholder and all that. Clearly, in the eighties, she might have been some kind of sex goddess for all I know. But yeah, so he really, really wants to have sex with her, but she's kind of unsure because she knows that she's going to kill him, and you can see like kind of the 
the hesitancy to kind of go ahead because she's going to kill this guy, basically. But And he's a bit of a dum-dum, I'm not going to lie. So if you were bringing someone home and they took you up to this room and it's really dingy and filthy and there are rats everywhere and there's no bed, there's not even any furniture in there whatsoever and like <laughs> someone wanted to have sex with you, you'd be a bit suspicious. You'd be like, yeah, you really want to fuck here? Okay, fine. So he gets killed with a hammer to the head, which is... Uh, pretty violent does but hey um she's the height of 80s fashion and <laughs> she's a good looking woman so she does seem to pick up these guys very easily so yes. so yeah she so she bludgeons him with a hammer and then drains the blood for frank we then move on to the this carries on with uh, what she's doing because she needs to obviously collect a few for frank to regain his strength so she then i've noted down here's a, a white vest man <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I've got here, like, it's just a male victim. I'm not sure he has a name. He has the same thing done to him, so she hits him with the hammer, drains the blood. Yep. And next I have Stanley Sykes, and uh, he's wearing a suit. So there's a suited man with glasses, and he actually gets, well, she bludgeons him with a hammer, but then Frank drains the blood. Yes, and what happens at this point is um, Kirsty has been asked by her dad to kind of, you know, go to the house because Julia is acting really weird, <laughs> as you probably would, you know, for obvious reasons. And Kirsty basically sees everything that's going on. And yeah, she uh, <laughs> comes in and sees that Frank has come back and he's killed this poor guy <laughs> who uh, has him all the time don't let him kill me basically that yeah. he comes out with and it's the first time we hear the uttering of Jesus Christ which brings us to a famous line in the film later on <laughs> um, th- there's quite a lot of exclaiming about Jesus like from time to time in this franchise and it becomes a bit of a running theme yeah and um, what happens then is um, Kirsty then basically takes the box, um, the Lament Configuration box, steals it from Frank because he obviously really, really wants it. Um, she ends up in hospital and essentially she opens the box, as everyone in this franchise does. They don't question why they're doing it. They just seem to do it without thinking, uh, which brings us to the Cenobites who appear for the very, very first time in the franchise, which is very weird that, like you say, the, the Cenobites are what everyone remembers, but yet in this film they appear really really late in the film i think they appear about an hour into the film so yeah i noticed that on this time this time when i watched it i thought wow i thought that they came in a lot sooner than that but you just focused on frank um and i really feel like it's enough it it does seem like looking back on this that they would have been in it more but you're right it's only like halfway through that they turn up yes so you've got obviously doug bradley playing as in the credits of this film lead cenobite so he's not actually even called pinhead yet at this point we have the butterball cenobite who's played by simon banford who's a friend of clive barker and we have the chatterer cenobite who's played by nicholas vince who's also a friend of clive barker and we have the female cenobite who's played by grace kirby who of the four is the only one who doesn't appear in hellbound because apparently she didn't have a very good time making this film so she decided not to appear in the next one now very very interesting talking point um so the novella the cenobites are now some people misinterpret this. I've seen videos where people talk about differences between Hellbound Heart and Hellraiser, and they say, oh, in the novella, Pinhead is actually a woman. 
that's not actually true. <laughs> so in the novella, the way that Barker describes the Cenobites is they're kind of sexless. So they're almost gender fluid. So we had gender fluidity in 1987 wow. where they aren't really any sex. So they could be male or female. They're very formless. So yeah. interestingly, we could in theory have had like a female pinhead, yeah. which would have been very, very interesting, I think. Yeah. Um I don't think it would have been as strong myself, but I see what you mean about the gender fluidity. Um, because, like, even in some, of, also in some of the sequels, it's difficult to distinguish sometimes. Obviously, because you can't tell by the face, and if if the build is more kind of neutral and not obvious, then you wouldn't really be able to tell what gender it was, and it probably wouldn't really matter that much. Mm. Like from the suits, like if you had a very slender female. Uh, slender tall female playing pinhead and similar build of, of guy playing pinhead it would probably work just as well hmm. i think it's his it's his voice that makes it isn't it like with a masculine voice oh definitely yeah he's got an amazing voice anyone who's heard um midian by cradle of phil for there's a couple of other albums that he appears on like he's got his awesome voice kind of on there and yeah his voice definitely makes the character absolutely although of the cenobites i gotta say yes pinhead is the one who does most of the talking but i actually find the chatterer cenobite very very eerie and very scary because it's a thing with chattering teeth and it's very ominous and like yeah i just i always found him like when i first saw it he was the one i actually found the most scary yeah um, i agree with you i mean i do find pinhead the most scary but the chatter is very close behind um it is just so creepy that he's doing that constantly it's such a it's kind of a really subtle noise but at the same time it's just so creepy yeah definitely so what happens is Kirsty opens the box they're like the box you opened it we came and um essentially they say we want to take you to hell and she's like uh don't want to go to hell actually um there's this guy i know called frank i believe you know him as well um he's escaped you i will trade his soul for mine and uh is that okay and they're like yep awesome so they're happy with that and what happens is at this point we're coming sort of quite close to the ending so one of the things i love about this film is that it's actually the pacing is really good like the film goes so quickly because the yeah. story is just so good yeah it's amazing isn't it how fast it goes i'm quite impressed with how kirsty was able to strike up this deal with them and she seems very effective at doing that. She's like almost outsmarting them. She's like distracted them from what they were doing. And she's like, I've got something that you want. And then they accept, which you don't think is going to happen. You think they're just going to be like, no. <laughs> no, so it's kind of like, a, so this film has been described as a Faustian bargain film. So obviously you have Frank, he makes this Faustian bargain with the Cenobites where he wants to reach the outer limits of pleasure, as we say, and then they take his soul. But then, yeah, they offer the same bargain to Kirsty. It's like, uh, no, you can have this guy's soul instead. So yeah, she definitely did outsmart them in that sense. Not the first time that she outsmarted the Cenobites, by the way. It's a common thread throughout the series exactly which is what impresses me about her character her ability to do that yes and then um at this point we're getting sort of near the end of the film so what you have is you have frank has essentially killed larry and taken his skin so now what you have is andrew robinson doing what he does best which is playing a deranged psychopath which he does very well in this film so you've got him and he comes out with some really amazing lines um one of which is so much for the cat and mouse shit <laughs> Which is a great line. Yeah. And that's on Larry's R6 um, death. 
and he is skinned and smoking by the end of it. And it, I, I just wanted to add that. Like, it's just so satisfying as well, though, isn't it? Because you kind of want to just get rid of him. Like, in some kind of weird way, I just wanted Julia and Frank to be together because it's made you want that for them, even though it's so, like, <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> so, you know, because, like, it's so... With this film, I think what's great about it is you get so into the characters. Like, they're so interesting and everything that's going on. Yeah, I know. like I said earlier, like, Larry, he didn't really do anything wrong. He was just in the wrong... He met the wrong woman, shall we say. He wanted probably a more straight-laced woman than kind of what he ended up with, I think. So poor Larry, um, he's kind of, you know, just gets killed and skinned. Yeah, glad to see the back of him. (laughs) Oh, poor Larry. At at first I'm like, wow, Frank's his brother and he's doing that, you know, he's like stealing his wife. But then I was just like, yeah, no, actually, like, I think we need to get rid of Larry here. (laughs) And then... um, very predictably, although it does make sense in terms of the story, because obviously Frank is using Julia just to get him his uh, his skin back, and then once you know he's back, then he doesn't really have any use for Julia anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Although very very kind of perverse scene actually, just before this is um, once it's clear that Frank has taken Larry's skin and put it on, um, him and Julia actually have sex, which yeah. um, is very very kinky. So Frank then stabs Julia accidentally on purpose in the stomach and then he realizes and he said oh nothing personal babe <laughs> and she's just like what she's just like i can't believe this um yeah, it, yeah it's just so dismissive isn't it he's like oh, yeah i don't really care um, <laughs> yeah which actually um, gets so uh, <laughs> played off on the next film actually quite well yes although i it's... loved that i loved that the kind of continuation of that yeah although it's interesting because what happens is later on they actually found julia's body and it's on the mattress and it's got the chains coming out of it so i was curious as to sort of how that happened um it's sort of not very clear it's one of the only things that isn't really very clear in the film as to what actually happened whether julia just had the box and she tried to open it and i don't know if the cinnabites just came for her or kind of what happened there but yeah somehow she ends up sort of skinless on her mattress at some point and i always found that a bit confusing yeah, I found that completely confusing as well. I wasn't sure how that that had happened at all. It doesn't make sense because she's in the stairwell when he when he stabs her in the stomach. Yeah, and he like sucks completely sucks like her essence or her life force if we're talking about a different film kind of from her. So it's a bit like mm, okay, I didn't really understand how that happened, but oh well. Uh, the way that I kind of explained it away, like in my mind, was that maybe it was metaphorical. So he'd done that to her in the stairwell, and then metaphorically, that's where she'd ended up. So physically, she was then on the mattress because she'd gone to hell but it kind of happened in the stairwell and that was just some kind of representation of it but i just don't think that they've portrayed that very well how that happens or maybe they had to cut a chunk out of the movie or something like that yeah maybe maybe it just yeah maybe as you say it got lost in editing and then finally uh what what we get in the last sort of uh is my favorite scene in the whole film which is essentially where frank accidentally outs himself in front of the cenobites and um, then they tear his soul apart. Yeah, completely dismembered with the iconic chains. Yes. Um, which is amazing. And like in that room where they most of these deaths occur, it's just so it's just a small setting. And a lot of the time, like when the Cenobites come through, there are a load of meat hooks and chains that kind of fall from the ceiling. 
which is so atmospheric and like I just love those scenes and then when she, when Julia's taking people up to Frank it's just kind of the dingy room and then at one point it's a dingy room with the mattress on the floor so there's really not a lot there but they just do so much with it and like at the end when he gets dismembered with the chains it's literally like all the chains coming down from the ceiling and then and then him kind of splayed out and gets torn up and it's just still all in this one room in this in this little house in the UK but it's just so effective it is like a realm of hell but just inside just a, just a bedroom just an empty bedroom that's really run down and stained Yes, and at this point we get my favourite line in the whole Hellraiser series, which is, Jesus wept. And then, <laughs> commence tearing of flesh apart and explosions and shit. Yeah, it's fucking yes. awesome. It's my favourite part. So, I say, the whole film, the whole franchise, love it. So iconic when he says that. I believe at first they were going to say Jesus Christ, but he changed it to Jesus wept. I felt that it fitted more. Yeah, that was Andrew Robinson's idea. So he, uh, yeah, he he came up with that line. He, uh, <laughs> yeah, very very good choice, sir. Yeah. Um. So and then at this point, it kind of got to like my least favorite part of the film. So in the novella, what happens is essentially once Frank gets ripped apart and sort of taken back to hell, essentially the novella just ends. But what they did after this is essentially, instead of the Cenobites kind of keeping to their word and kind of just go, well, we got Frank, that's who we came for, and then we'll leave you alone, they kind of then try and get Kirsty, which I say I never really liked this section of the film, even when I was younger, when I first saw it. I never thought this whole last sort of 10 minutes never really made sense to me. So essentially, Kirsty's got the box and all the Cenobites are basically trying to get her. And there are some yeah. cool bits in it. Particularly... Well, they, they do say to her, they say, oh, you're not leaving us so soon, are you? And that's when the rest of this um, section of the film starts. But like you say, it's not. it's almost not needed because you've already got the satisfaction of that plot kind of being closed off like I was already satisfied at that point yeah I mean I was too I just kind of felt a bit superfluous to me but I I think what happened was it was maybe the uh, financiers or the not the producer it would be the financiers who insisted on kind of having this you know we need a girl because it's the 80s it's you know we've got slasher films we need a girl being chased by someone at the end of the film and then getting away so I guess that's final kind of what, girl, yeah. final girl moment. Yeah, exactly. I do like the way when the female Cenobite is kind of going after Kirsty, how she drags her hook along the wall and the wall starts bleeding. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, very effective. Yeah. Um, so basically, um, yeah, Kirsty with the box sort of sends all the Cenobites back to wherever it is they're from hell i guess (laughs) sends them back from there and then this guy steve who as it says my least favorite character in the whole film he turns up with his badly dubbed american accent he almost gets killed about three times and then what we get is we talked about the effects earlier now i think the effects hold up quite well the only one that doesn't really hold up so well is the engineer which is the monster that turns up a couple of times in the film so it first turns up when kirsty's at the hospital and then it turns up right at the end of the film and it just i don't know i didn't really like it again i i kind of get because it is in the novella but i don't know it just looked a bit cheap yeah it did and it really doesn't um match up to 
the Cenobites, you know, the level, the quality, <laughs> the level of quality put into the Cenobites in detail. So, yeah, I guess they, it looked like they struggled with that one. But like you say, it can't be perfect because this was his first film. It was in the 80s. So it's just like everything else is just so on a better level than, than that effect. It doesn't quite match, does it? Yeah, exactly. It was sort of a bit more similar to like Rawhead Rex, which I think is, as mentioned earlier, is kind of what Clive Barker was trying to get away from. Absolutely. Yeah, and also, like you say, it's not really needed. It's like part of the film that you just think, mm, I might choose to forget that bit because it's just nowhere near as good as the rest of, of the effects in there. So then we have kind of the actual end of the film itself. So we've got Kirsty and Steve kind of escaping the house. And I always felt it was unclear kind of what happened. Um, apparently, I mean, judging from the sequel, the house didn't burn down, but it kind of looks as if the house did burn down. And then we have the ending, which I never really liked. I have a big thing about endings that I don't really like. Um, and this is kind of one of them. It's just a bit, again, it doesn't really fit. It doesn't really feel necessary where you've got, um, essentially, we've got the homeless man appearing again. And he turns into sort of a, a weird dragon-like creature. And then he takes the box away. And then you're back at the beginning, back in the market, which we're not sure where that is. I was, I don't know, I was thinking like Arabia or something. Yeah. You know, it's like some weird... Yeah, it's not, I mean, I know there's absinthe there, which must be a cultural kind of thing, So, but we're not, we're not sure where exactly that is, because you see absinthe next to the, the man and the box at the very beginning of the film, and I think it might be there at the end as well, so there's some indication to a cultural reference there. But yeah, you're back at the beginning, back at the market, the box is right back there again, it's looped back round, and you hear a voice saying, what's your pleasure, sir? again mm. so it is kind of satisfying how it loops back round but it's like i say after frank gets dismembered towards the end of the film all that kind of extra stuff is kind of uh, i don't really feel like it's as valuable but it was still awesome like i still just love this film so much and aside from a couple of those effects at the end which do look a little cheaper than the rest of the film i think like it was very satisfying that it came back round to be concluded to the beginning again, where the puzzle box is right back out there for somebody else to pick it up and obviously leads it wide open for a sequel or maybe eight sequels. Who knows? <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Well, <laughs> Clive Barker didn't have eight sequels in mind when he made it, but oh well. Um, so, yeah, as we said, um, this is definitely, I mean, you most well all sensible people kind of think would say that this is the best one of the series it's got the tightest narrative it's got the best story it uses the cenobites kind of in the best way i believe because to me the cenobites are kind of almost like a macguffin they kind of just are there to kind of move the plot along really they don't really need to be there for any other purpose in later films where we have sort of pinhead as almost like the an antagonist of the film is kind of yeah i don't think that works as well and Clive Barker agrees with me because that's also his opinion. Yeah, um, I see what you mean, but it's like when you think of this film, which revolves around being supernatural beings coming from hell to take souls from Earth, it's really like you never really see their world. So, how can you represent hell? So, hell is never really shown in that whole first film, um, the basis of this kind of place where you see elements of hell is just the spare room in a sort of semi-empty old house so really the Cenobites are there to represent hell 
without you actually being shown hell. So you just keep being given a little piece of that by the beings coming out of there and then taking people back in. So what's great about that is that you can only imagine where they've come from by what they look like uh, without actually seeing it. And all we see is a grubby, empty room and we just imagine that they've just come from hell, which is, you know, exactly like they are. It's going to be bleak. It's going to be gory. It's going to be full of pain, torture, mutilation. Um, but we know that by by the characters and not by actually seeing the place, which is awesome. Yes, yeah, so it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, the next year, you know, Hellraiser came out and it did really well. Um, so the budget was only just over a million dollars, and based on kind of how well they thought the the movie was going to play out, um, New World decided to finance a sequel, which is Hellbound Hellraiser Two. Um, now it's a great title yeah absolutely yeah it's a very very evocative title now Clive Barker couldn't actually direct he stepped down from directing duties on this one um, however he did conceive the story with the screenwriter who is Peter Atkins who is another longtime friend and associate of Clive Barker's um, but other than that really you have kind of the rest of the, the crew including uh, Christopher Young who we didn't actually mention he um, came up with a very iconic score um, of which we have actually used some of it for our intro it's a song called seduction and pursuit um is the name of the song that we use as our intro music but yeah it's a very iconic score yeah i mean this film is so iconic that we based our whole podcast kind of persona and um uh visuals and the name the lament configuration on that on the basis that true fans of general horror would get the reference and even if people didn't know that that small reference to a, a classic cult film um then it still uh, represents something that's about dissecting the parts of talking about horror so this is just such an iconic film that we couldn't help name our podcast after it, basically. Right. Exactly. We love it that much. Um, so Hellbound, Hellraiser 2 is directed by Tony Randall, who he was uncredited as an editor on the first film, um, and he was brought in to direct. And yeah, essentially it's the same setup, and it's set literally straight after the events of the first film. Yeah, so it's a 1988 film, so the very next year, and that was brought out. So obviously they brought that out quickly because um, of such a great response to the first one. And it's the institution film, set in an institution, and mainly based around Kirsty um, being our final girl in the first film. They uh, then set the, the film around her. So she's brought to an institution after the death of her family in the first film where an occult obsessive head resurrects julia her stepmom and unleashes the cenobites once again yes so essentially this is kind of a very similar story to the first one so it's the second film in a row where you have a character who wants to experience sort of you know the pain and pleasure and wants to do that by you know unleashing the cenobites and opening the box and to do that they uh, resurrect a character who has previously passed away so in this case julia and you have sort of the Cenobites playing a smaller role again. 
And yeah, so quite similar to, interestingly, uh, Halloween 2, which is also set in a hospital. Um, you've got this film, which is set mainly in a psychiatric hospital, although you actually get to learn a bit more about the Cenobites, kind of where they came from originally. And also you actually get to see Hell itself, which I think is probably the best parts of the film is actually the effects work. So I really like the uh, production design on this film. I really like the design of the actual labyrinth itself, where you've got Leviathan, who is very, very cool looking sort of... It's hard to describe what Leviathan actually is, but I thought he looked fucking awesome anyway, nonetheless. And um, you actually get to see how a Cenobite is made in this film. Yeah, um, so I really enjoyed those elements of um, the, the human basis to the Cenobite which explains a lot from the first film that you feel like could have been filled in. So that element of it is great. Yes. Um, now, as a film as a whole, I kind of like this one. I don't like it as much as the first one, but of the sequels, I think it is the best one. It's kind of my sort of opinion. I mean, there are more bits of it I don't really like. I don't really like kind of a lot of the dialogue. There's a lot of what I think is unnecessary exposition given in this film mostly by Kyle who only seems to be in the film really to give exposition or to react to what's going on that seems to be his sole purpose in the film (laughs) so when he died I was actually quite happy because I thought he was a bit of a useless character I totally agree and I think yeah I think this is definitely the best sequel but closely followed by the third one which we'll come to on the next show um, because I really enjoyed the third one as well which I know some people don't like um, but yeah, this is a sequel I feel is it's obviously not as good as the first one, but it's a valuable sequel. I enjoyed it and I do like the hospital setting and the idea of, of this doctor um, and the um, the institute. So yeah, so story basically is um, Kirsty is in a hospital. Um, it's the Chenard Institute, which is run by uh, Dr. Chenard. Um, who is played by Kenneth Cranham, who I think gives a really good performance in this. He's another sort of Shakespearean actor, very similar to Claire Higgins. And, you know, he's interested in Lament Configuration and he's got stuff on the history of the Cenobites and kind of where they come from, things like that. And to me, one of the best scenes in the film is um, where he brings back Julia, through the mattress where they have like a uh, solitary confinement ward at this hospital which is in sort of the basement um, which reminded me a lot of science of the lambs actually i don't know about you yeah i actually didn't think about that when i was watching it but now that you've mentioned it yes oh well, there you go that's why i'm here um mm-hmm. so basically um there's this one particular patient who is very very eerie patient um that believes his skin is being covered in maggots and he keeps saying, get them off me, get them off me. And it's um, much, much more kind of gruelling than I just did, let's put it that way. And um, essentially, Chenard sets him up um, to cut himself, and he uh, gets Julia back, basically, from hell. Yeah, and um, so our straitjacket guy um, with the, who sees the maggots and is obviously cutting himself, trying to get rid of these maggots, he's our first death in the film of 28 deaths yeah which, which is, is a lot. that's a lot of deaths <laughs> yeah that's a lot of deaths yeah um I, I think it it only increases or it possibly becomes more in some of the sequels but from the first one which just had eight this was like 
like they well up to their game and it didn't feel like it was just for the sake of it like it's just very dramatic and just keeps building so i did re enjoy this sequel so 28 deaths our first one being um our straight jacket guy i believe his name is browning or he's referred to as that in the film yes um and then after that um because what you have to bear in mind is video did not exist when this sequel was made so obviously you had hellraiser and then i guess what they had to consider is that there would be people out there who hadn't seen the first film so they kind of had to fill people in on what actually happened in the first film so there's a kind of a three or four minute long sequence um where basically it's Kirsty basically giving all this exposition about what happened in the first film um so we got that oh yeah i didn't like that like just the use of all of the footage from the first film like i felt like it was necessary in case people are seeing this and they weren't aware of the first one because it wasn't it'd only been out a year so some people might have missed it or might not know about it and might see the second one on the off chance that it's just showing so they'll go and check it out um, but it was a lot of like footage from the first film used again, which always feels a bit lazy to me. But I guess it's, you know, it's contextual, it's awesome scenes from the film and it's a great summary. So maybe they needed to do or put all that in there. Who knows? <laughs> and then after that, we have loads of deaths. Um, because Chenard is obviously trying to bring Julia back. So it's in a kind of uh, repeat of the first film. Obviously, they have to kill all these people in order to bring Julia back. So that's basically what happens. Yeah, so there's like seven Institute patients. So that's deaths, two to eight of our 28 deaths in this film. And um, yeah, it's just kind of, you see them, you don't really realise how many it is because it just that happens fairly quickly. But um, you do see them hanging up later in the room like quite a lot when we're back in the the same room as the the first film yeah so all this is taking place at dr chenard's house um now very interesting because kyle actually works at the hospital um itself and he essentially sees all this because he sneaks into chenard's house while julia is sort of coming back through the mattress and then he takes kirsty to chenard's house and then kyle thankfully dies yeah, I wasn't too keen on him myself either, and how convenient that he works at the uh, hospital, eh? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. You know, he's got all these clothes that he can give her, and like, you know, he can take her out, and no one notices that you've uh, you've taken her out of the hospital. So that was great. And then basically, what happens is um, there's a character called Tiffany who is uh, played by Imogen Borman, who is a kind of mute girl who's really, really good with puzzles. Yeah, yeah I did feel like. I wasn't sure about that character at first, but then I did feel like it was quite a, a valid addition to the plot in that she's like obsessed with puzzles and they've got the puzzle box. So it kind of makes sense to keep driving that home. And she is quite kind of creepy and you're intrigued by her character. What did you think to Tiffany? Um, yeah, I, I wasn't sure about her either. But I guess having her in there does kind of make sense because you've got to bear in mind, obviously, there's no Larry. So Kirsty is in effect kind of become Larry. So she, Tiffany, I mean, is kind of almost like the new sort of Kirsty character. So she's kind of taken that role as such. So she's just there to solve puzzles, essentially. Yeah. And I've noted down here that when Julia comes out of the mattress and she's, you know, obviously starting to feed on these patients and everything um she's still power dressing and she's in a white suit this time (laughs) 
which is pretty nightmarish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Although at this point, um, before like Claire Higgins comes back, um, she is again played by a really, really skinny actress, basically covered in all this prosthetic sort of skinless makeup, which is very weird. So although, I don't know, I, I didn't notice to start off with that it actually wasn't Claire Higgins. I just assumed it was. So they fooled me. So if they can fool me, they can fool anyone. Yeah, it does look quite like her. And then obviously as she builds up, as she feeds more, um, she fills out into the real Claire Higgins. Yeah, absolutely. And then we get to see sort of what hell actually looks like. And um, if it's what hell looks like, sign me up because hell looks really cool. Um, So we've got lots of corridors, which I'm not going to lie, did kind of remind me of Nightmare, the kids TV show. So you've got kind of all these sort of uh, corridors uh, that lead sort of to other corridors and lead to all these weird rooms where people see things, which is uh, something that happens in a lot of the Hellraiser sequels, uh, where people see things that aren't there. Yeah, yeah, I thought it reminded me of Nightmare as well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we need needed... that TV show. Yeah, oh, me too. We just need Treyguard in there. Although Pinhead is actually very, very similar to Treyguard in a lot of a lot of ways. He does make these kind of very long, wordy sort of proclamations. And, uh, yeah, essentially, he's like the dungeon master, but exactly. You know, He's master of hell instead. <laughs> so there you go. If you want to have an entertaining watch of this film, just imagine the same film but with uh, Treyguard as Pinhead. And it's uh, there you go. Um, so after that, the Cenobites appear again. And there's some slight controversy with this film um, because they changed the Chatterer Cenobites makeup. Because in the first film, um, it didn't have eyes, which meant that Nicholas Vince couldn't see where he was going, um, which is. <laughs> bit of an impediment to good acting so they gave the uh, the Chatterer Cenobite eyes in this one so that he could actually see which was very uh, not well received with some fans. I mean I don't know about you. I mean I kind of prefer it without eyes because it looks more eerie Yeah I think it does look more eerie without the eyes too but you know I, I didn't mind them changing that too much because it's still the same character but yeah I did feel it was more eerie the first time uh, and then we get other scenes in hell like for example um, Kirsty goes into a room where you've got all these beds covered in sheets and there are writhing bodies under the sheets um, which are covered in blood um, which I thought was quite a cool effect and which is when we get the return of Frank um, because there's a scene earlier in the film which we haven't really explained but basically Kirsty thinks that her dad is still in hell and written in blood on the wall is I am in hell help me which she assumes is from her dad but it's actually from Frank which you know makes sense I recognize it was Frank sort of straight away but she didn't yeah yeah I recognize that too and I thought it was a very cool part of the film um the the writhing bodies that you mentioned that was an awesome part as well it was also like a clown juggling eyeballs and there's like this baby crying noise that keeps it's quite repetitive throughout the films which I found really eerie and it usually comes from an adult or some kind of monster but they they repeat this baby crying noise quite a lot did you yeah 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 so that's the scene in like the circus it's quite sort of reminded me of the fun house which we talked about on episode number eight where Yeah. yeah it's all that kind of circus imagery so I really like that um so after we get Frank we get Dr. Chenard. Um, he gets turned into a Cenobite, which is a scene that I really liked where you say you get to see sort of, you know, 
all the pain that people go through like when they get turned into a Cenobite so he gets all this kind of barbed wire or cheese wire pressed against his head um, which looks very nasty and you get his blood gets drained out of his body and replaced with a blue liquid which kind of makes sense because when he comes back in his Cenobite form his face is all blue <laughs> yeah, and he has what appears to be a giant dick sort of stuck out of his head which is uh, <laughs> yeah. a bit unfortunate but yeah. Oh uh, well, yeah. and he makes these very, very like very scary kind of gargly sort of noises, like ah, like that kind of those very, very scary noises. Yeah, and he's got these kind of like weird bits that shoot out of him, and these eyeballs and different things. And he's just in like kind of floating around in quite an odd posture. He keeps sort of like flying out of walls and things. Yeah. So we got like yeah, as you said, he's got these tentacles. Which they how they do it is they do it using stop motion animation, which is um, kind of cool. They would definitely do it with CGI now. Um, and yeah. It would, I don't know. You could argue that it would look better if they did it in CGI. But as you said, he's got all these tentacles that have these different openings and the flowers or knives or a finger at one point and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, that was that was creepy. The the finger that comes out of there was really that really freaked me out. Um, that like with this insight into how he gets made into a Cenobite, which like you say is really cool. Um, you also have a bit at the beginning where you see kind of Pinhead being created where they're actually putting the pins in and etching the lines into his skin with the knife, um, which I found really cool. So like you say, it's filling in those gaps in, from the first film, which is where we're just shown the characters in the first film, whereas here it's like, well, where did they come from and how do they end up in that form? Um, which, you know, it just explains a little bit more of the backstory that you would want to know about as a fan. Yeah, exactly. Um, so post Kyle, what deaths did you have? Okay, so I have. Uh, well, we have Frank, didn't we? Because obviously, what happens when we're in hell with Frank is that Julia, who we haven't really talked about much, she kind of gets revenge on Frank from the first movie with the uh, nothing personal babe. Yeah. So death number ten, death number eleven. So death number ten is Kyle. Death number eleven. Julia kills Frank and she says nothing personal, babe. Um, and then after that, our next death is actually Julia herself. Yes. So um, what happens is, like, um, because of the Chenard Cenobite, there's this huge kind of scent, like reaction in the labyrinth because um, Leviathan is very pissed off and there's essentially a huge wind tunnel created and Julia, like, you know, she uh, essentially gets her skin ripped off, <laughs> which uh, yeah. can't be very nice. <laughs> very, very grisly. She gets pulled into a hell portal. <laughs> yeah, And it basically. is it is so, so grisly. And as you say, like, that, that actress that plays the skinless version of her is, like, skinnier than her. So she's, like, just, as you, as you know with Frank, she's, like, red from head to toe and you know, has that sort of inside-out look about her that a lot of the characters in these films do. Mm. Um, and then Kirsty and Tiffany end up back at the hospital um, through the labyrinth, and then the Chenard Cenobite appears and he utters the immortal line, the doctor is in, which I love. Yeah, it's quite it's a cool scene, that, when he kind of flies in through the wall and it's very menacing. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's a, they totally get away with that line without making it too cheesy as well. <laughs> yes. Now, this is interesting because when we talk about Hellraiser 3, um, there's a very, very fine line when you're cutting all these lines between cool and cheesy. And I think Chenard gets away with it really well because he does have all these really cool lines. Uh, another one which I love is like, um, I recommend amputation, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, somehow it manages to not be cheesy, and I totally expected it to be. Um, but yeah, they did really well with that. His delivery is great. Yeah, so yeah, that's Kenneth Cranham. So I say he gives a really, really good performance. He is uh, probably the highlight of the film, I would say. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, but like you say about um, the, Levi- the Leviathan and the Labyrinth, um, and these sort of um, areas that look like the TV show Nightmare. It also made me think of like Maze Runner and also uh, that David Bowie film Labyrinth, but not quite as friendly. But it does have that kind of dungeon-esque sort of feeling to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then what happens is we get a scene with the Cenobites where we get this epic standoff, or at least what we think is going to be an epic standoff between the four Cenobites and Chenard, who's like the new kid on the block, so to speak. And I thought this was a bit of a letdown. I don't know about you, because all the four four Cenobites from the previous film, they all kind of just die very, very quickly and very easily. There's like no struggle whatsoever basically. Yeah, I was a little bit disappointing. So you had the, the 10 Institute patients, apparently it's 10. So after Julia, uh, it's like death 13 to 22, is like 10 patients. And then death 23, the first of the original um, Cenobites is, is Butterball, mm-hmm. who like you say is the kind of uh, the roly-poly fat guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Michelin man Cenobite. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very creepy looking, actually. Mm. Although there's, like, he's not got like exposed skin like the other Cenobites have, but he's very creepy looking. He doesn't do an awful lot either, but still manages no. to look very menacing. He just he's just there to look fat and menacing, exactly as you say. <laughs> yeah. Then it's um, so Death Twenty Four is a, the female Cenobite. So all of these. Cenobites just get a metal rod thrown into their chest and they're just impaled and it's just over very quickly, like you say, which is potentially a little disappointing, but at this point, it's getting quite late in the film, I think. Yeah, and what happens is when they die, they revert back to their original human form. So the first two, like, it's pretty sort of self-explanatory, like, it's just a fat guy and a woman. But then when we get the Chatterer, who's the next one to die, um, it turns out his human form was a boy, which is very, very mm. weird that he was yes. you know, very eerie. That's re- really confusing and very strange. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that. <laughs> yeah. Although Nicholas Vince apparently interviews, he said that he didn't mind that it was a small boy. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then finally we get sort of Pinhead himself. Now he is the only, when they revert back to their human forms, um, he is the only person where it's the actor playing the Cenobite that is in human form because obviously Doug Bradley is sort of very iconic and he looks a certain way and you've seen his picture so yeah and obviously the use of his voice which they could have dubbed but it's going to be more natural if they use that the same way yes so and they all die now from this point one of the other issues that I have with this film is it's more in the narrative because 
Um, in comparison to the previous film, which had a very straightforward narrative with maybe sort of, you know, only really four characters and then the Cenobites, um, we have all these different characters and they all have different relationships to each other. So you've got Kirsty and you've got Julia, then you've got Kirsty and Tiffany, you've got mm-hmm. Kirsty and Chenard, you've got Julia and Chenard, um, you've got Tiffany and Chenard, and then you've got Frank who appears, and you've got all these different characters who just turn up and it just gets very, very confusing after a while yeah it does get kind of get confusing and like i say there's such a lot of um, deaths in this film it was like a struggle to kind of separate which ones was were there and which one because like let's not forget the cenobites are already dead so then they get killed off kind of again and go back to being human so it does get a little confusing <laughs> yeah absolutely and then after that we get chenard himself who dies yeah so death 26 was pinhead um, Def 27 is Chenard, our doctor, and he is decapitated. His head's pulled off from Leviathan and it's just kind of dropped into the labyrinth abyss. Yeah. He's kind of dropped in there. Yeah, he, he gets uh, decapitated by the giant penis attached to his head. <laughs> yes, that's that's what it would look like. <laughs> yeah. And we've got what... Yeah, it's it's a cool ending. Like, there's a lot of build up to this, and as always, like when so Pinhead has already died, and then our one of our other main characters and main monsters, the Doctor's died, and it's kind of disappointing because you know the film's coming to an end. But you know that's how it goes in these films, as we learn throughout the franchise. Yeah, <laughs> we we have one more death left, which is yes. Death Twenty Eight, which is. A removal man. So it's, we're still in the same house with the same shabby rooms and a removal man shows up. Yes. Um, yeah, before that, we have like a very, very weird ending sort of where essentially Tiffany has kind of changed the main configuration into like a giant diamond shape to match sort of the shape of uh, Leviathan. And then essentially she mm-hmm. thinks that Julia is trying to save her but it's actually Kirsty wearing Julia's skin who seduces Chenard and then sort of saves Tiffany and then takes the skin off and it's actually Kirsty and then there's just a, a great big long chase scene and Leviathan gets really pissed off and fires all these lightning bolts everywhere and they basically get out and there, yeah, as you say, you get the scene. It's actually at Chenard's house where uh, the removal man... Now, it's interesting, it's actually the same removal man from Hellraiser. So... Oh, no way. That's yes. cool. It is the same removal man, and he gets dragged into the mattress by, well, it's hard to say. Originally, as I mentioned earlier, it was supposed to be Julia, but Claire Higgins didn't want to appear in any more movies. So instead of it being a person, we get the Pillar of Souls, which emerges, which is the big statue with all the Cenobites and the homeless person from the first film all kind of trapped in it. Yeah, it's kind of weird because it kind of looks like some kind of uh, interpretive art sculpture, like someone's art project that should be in a gallery. Well, wow. and then, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just kind of uh, a theme that then starts running throughout Hellraiser that these these objects that are like portals to hell could also be beautiful things that people mistake for art. So this pillar of souls is really something very strange looking out. Wasn't sure about the concept and whether I liked it at first, but it does it does work. 
Yeah, yeah. As I, I mean, I, I really like the look of it, and compared to how it looks in Hellraiser Three, um, I actually think it looked, thought it looked really cool. And yeah, it was just, um, yeah, it was kind of just a way I think to kind of, you know go into a sequel because i think they knew again that there probably would be another sequel so it's just setting that up really so yeah overall yeah just to sum up what do you think um yeah i mean the sequel is as i thought it would be not as good as the first one which is very difficult to touch because up until that point i hadn't seen anything like that um it answers a lot of questions from the first one which i think they did very well like you say, with the Moonful Man at the end, um, he's bisected by chains again from the Pillar of Souls, so it's got a great ending. A little confusing, which I think is like, because like you say, the plot in the first film was so tight um, that this one does get quite confusing, but overall I really liked it. Um, so yeah, it's up there. Like, first one is my favourite. I think the second one is my second favourite, so um, they did well with that. Yeah, yeah, and it helps. As I said, it was you know Clive Barker was very heavily involved. I mean, he say he helped with the story, um, so there was a continuity from the first film, and they used, I say, a lot of the main kind of uh, behind the scenes people were there. So it had you say the same producer, the same special effects people, the same editor, the same music, things like that. So yeah, it really helped. And yeah, of all the sequels, I'd say this is the best by far and i say it's not a perfect film as i mentioned earlier i have issues with like the exposition some of the dialogue um the effects in this one are pretty good and they're definitely sort of the high point particularly the bits with the chenard cenobite that's definitely the highlight of the film for me um story bit confusing sort of too many loose ends think uh, you could have done with a tighter narrative um but other than that mm-hmm. it's very enjoyable and really if you're going to watch any of the films um, you only really need to watch these two, if I'm being honest. The others are if you absolutely love Hellraiser. Um, if you're not a Hellraiser fanatic, the first two films are sufficient, I believe. I would agree with you in that I think with the continuation, they bring the most value to the plot. And then everything after that, if you enjoy it, then it's a bonus. And it's like I said, when we get around to talking about the rest of them, I did really enjoy the third one. So I recommend one to three um on this but yeah one one and two like really stand out as the best films for me yes absolutely so um we've come to the end of part one of our discussion of hellraiser and the series um so thank you very much um as i said my name is greg knox and i want to thank everyone for listening to the show and for subscribing to us on itunes or liking our facebook page or subscribing to us on youtube um we are also available on podbean and we are also available on TuneIn radio which i think is really cool because i love TuneIn radio i use it um to listen to the radio because i actually don't have one in my house so if i want to listen to the radio that's what i do so um you can like our podcast on there as well should you wish to do so yeah and as greg said i've been resident body count girl reoffend um alternative model and uh also host of the lament configuration so all the same um social media channels apply for the lament configuration thank you for all the feedback and the messages um Oh, we really love getting comments on the content of the show and which bits you find funny. So thanks very much for letting me know about that via direct message. Um, my modeling, my alternative modeling pages are on Facebook as Reoffend. That's F-E-N-D. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter as Rhea underscore Fend. 
Cool. So on the next show, we're going to be covering the remaining seven. Yes, seven. Because <laughs> there's quite a lot of them. Uh, sequels. Uh, yeah, what, what, what a marathon that was. Nine films. <laughs> yes. Although um, it's not actually the franchise with the most sequels, but that's fine. It's still nine is, is quite a lot. It's pretty excessive stuff. That sounds like you're laying down the gauntlet with this uh, other franchise with more sequels, <laughs> to be fair. I like yes. a challenge. Yes, the Anisville Horror has 16 films. We are oh, not wow, doing okay. all 16 films for that. That's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I hope you enjoyed the show. I look forward to the next one. And um, if you, you know, really, really excited, want to know what you think, you know, don't be upset. We will be back in two weeks' time. Yeah, so no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And in a fortnight's time, we'll be back with the next episode of the Hellraiser special, which covers films three to nine in the sequels in the Hellraiser franchise. <laughs>